It's Tuesday, August 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. U.S. defense officials expected that Afghanistan's capital could fall to the Taliban 90 days after troops withdrew from the area, but it took less than 10 days. How were they able to take over so quickly? A number of factors contributed, including intelligence failures, a lack of will to fight by the Afghan forces, corruption, and money. Amanda Macias, national security reporter at CNBC, joins us for how Afghanistan fell so fast. Next, speaking on the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan's capital, President Biden acknowledged that things unfolded quicker than they expected, but also said that he stood squarely behind his decision to pull troops out of the area. What are the next steps for U.S. policy toward Afghanistan? And did we learn anything from intelligence failures on the ground? Dr. Tom Copeland, author of Fool Me Twice, Intelligence Failure and Mass Casualty Terrorism, joins us for more on the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. Finally, it's been a theme we have seen throughout the pandemic, a reassessment of the work-life balance. According to the latest Washington Post poll, a third of workers under 40 considered changing their careers or where they live during the pandemic. Scott Clement, polling director at the Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. Joining us now is Amanda Macias, national security reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Thanks for having me. We've been seeing a ton of stuff going down in Afghanistan, but I wanted to take a step back and kind of get an overview of how we got here and how the Taliban was able to take over Afghanistan so quickly. We've been there for about two decades of war, 6,000 American lives lost, over 100,000 Afghans have been killed, and we spent about $2 trillion there. And there was an assessment saying that maybe 90 days before Afghanistan's capital could fall, it took less than 10 days. So, Amanda, help us walk through some of this. How did we get here? Right. This has just been breathtaking developments. The security situation has just completely devolved over the past couple of weeks. You know, ever since President Biden announced in April that he wanted to fully withdraw all U.S. troops, shortly thereafter, NATO made the same assessment. So once you saw this sort of exodus of foreign troops from Afghanistan, effectively ending America's longest war, you really did start to see the Taliban slowly start to encircle And in the last two weeks, I would say, is when there was this lightning round where they would capture provincial capitals, one after another just kept falling. And what was really striking was that a lot of times the Afghan Defense Force didn't really put up a fight. So what calls into question and what the president reiterated again was that it doesn't make sense for the United States to, again, spend 20 years fighting a war after so much investment, after so many lives lost, if the Afghan military wasn't willing to find a way to reunite the government and to figure out a way to move forward with their country. Why was the Taliban so easily able to capture these capitals? As you mentioned, it didn't seem like there was much fight going on uh, from Afghanistan's leaders, from uh, the National Army. What happened in that sense of it? If you look at the actual stacking up these militaries, right? The Afghan Defense Forces have long been supported by the United States as well as NATO. And 
the Taliban does not have an air force, right? They don't have fighter jets. They don't have the support from Western governments. So it really does call into question, why did this happen? And part of that is a little bit of the culture in that the Taliban are often sympathizers. You know, they live amongst the people. And I think after 20 years of war, what you start to sort of assess is that they're tired. This is a war-weary country. And despite having all of this assistance, all of this training, the backing of the United States government, it's just really staggering. It's, it's really shocking to see this. And I think this is something that despite what the Pentagon will say and the State Department said, they really didn't think that the Afghan forces would concede so quickly to the Taliban. You mentioned the Afghan forces having so much more firepower and everything, let's say, but how is the Taliban as a military fighting force? It seemed that they were you know, much more adept at all of this overtaking than the Afghan forces were. It makes you wonder if there was just a complete reliance on foreign troops, knowing that the United States, you know, had been there for so long that NATO had also offered up Germany behind the United States as the second largest investor in the Afghan government and in the coalition fight against the Taliban. Again, either the Afghan National Defense Force was caught flat footed or they just conceded because they were worried that once the United States withdrew, once they saw U.S. troops pulling out, once they saw their NATO partners leave, that they wouldn't be able to defend and hold all of the territory that had been gained in this 20-year war. So it was very much a sink or swim moment, I would say, for the Afghan Defense Force. Biden, in his speech, very much placed a lot of the blame on the Afghan government. And it's just it's just staggering when you think of how much resources, and how much time in training and lives went into setting up a partner. And this was really an attempt to create a Western democracy in Afghanistan. And I think we just saw what appears to be the apparent end of that with the Taliban's full takeover of Afghanistan. You mentioned in your article on all of this, this cultural obliviousness, how little Americans really understand Afghanistan. And you mentioned we wanted to push this kind of Western democracy on them, but you know they're a country of different tribes, languages, ethnicities, religious sects. It's completely different there. And us over here in America, half the people probably don't know or unwilling to know, you know, all that stuff. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. This started back at 9-11, right? I mean, I was in middle school um, when this war began and it started in Iraq, right? So just over the years, we've seen how many American presidents <laughs> have um, inherited this war. Right. And it just becomes to a point where it noise, you know? We've got other pacing threats that are emerging. You have Russia, you have China, you have North Korea. I mean, there's other parts of the globe um, that are hot points. And this has been the consistent one, this war in Afghanistan. And it starts to create this effect in which the American public's like, well, if we're leaving Afghanistan, why are we in Iraq? So, again, this is just something that people have grown up with. It doesn't seem to make any more sense. There's been so much bloodshed. There's been so much investment. And it comes to a point where the decision was made to withdraw. I don't think that chaos at the Kabul airport was expected. I don't think that the lightning round of Taliban advances and shocking battlefield reversals were expected. But you do see this administration standing 
steadfast in its decision to leave the country and continue to leave the country. It's unclear what will come on the heels of this and what American support will look like. Right. And President Biden said it himself when he spoke. He says he's not going to pass this along to another president. So, yeah, definitely a lot of stuff left still to be figured out with all of it. Amanda Macias, national security reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The Afghan military collapsed sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. Joining us now is Dr. Tom Copeland, director of research at the Centennial Institute and professor of politics at Colorado Christian University. He's also the author of Fool Me Twice, Intelligence Failures and Mass Casualty Terrorism. Dr. Copeland, thank you very much for joining us today. That's my pleasure. Let's start off by talking about uh, President Biden's response to what's been going on in Afghanistan. They were getting a lot of heat for not saying anything sooner. But when the president came out and spoke about what was happening, the fall of Afghanistan really to the Taliban, he stands squarely behind his decision to pull troops out. He said, we're not there for nation building. It wasn't right for us to be there so long. And that's kind of where he started. He doubled down, basically, that it was right to take our troops out of there. And I think that's fairly consistent, at least in terms of his own view on the Afghan war. When he was vice president previously, uh, he was generally opposed to increases in the number of troops and so on. At least he's consistent, I would say, in that regard. And I think we've understood both as a nation and I think political leadership have understood that um, it's not really working to be there long term the way that we are. A 20 year war is too long. But his highlighting the question of nation building really goes back to one of the key problems we've had from the very beginning. You know, we initially went in after 9-11 to take out al-Qaeda and the folks who had planned that attack on the U.S. But then we began to kind of morph into other things, um, nation building, which included everything from building schools and roads and hospitals and electrical supply and so on. So nation building was one mission after the al-Qaeda mission was nation building. But then there was also kind of the sense that well, we can build civil society. We want to help promote women's rights, for example. We're, we're a huge uh, issue under the Taliban. Uh, they're very restrictive of women. And so we have this goal of kind of transforming Afghan civil society. And then the, at another layer, perhaps, the, the neoconservatives who surrounded President Bush also saw kind of planting democracy in Afghanistan, just like planting it in Iraq, as a way to kind of change the dynamics of the whole region, dealing with Iran and, and Pakistan and so on. So I think one of the big problems that we've had all along, and Biden's comments kind of connect to that, at least, is that we were never really clear what's the one real mission we're trying to accomplish here. Two things that I heard throughout all of this is, uh, one, the the will of Afghanistan, of their, the military there and their leadership to fight, basically, against the Taliban. It seemed like they didn't want to do that. President Biden alluded to that as well. And the other thing I heard a lot about is intelligence failures. I guess they're, uh, you know, the U.S. defense officials expected Kabul to fall within 90 days, possibly. It took less than 10 days for the Taliban to take over there. You know, what do we make of the intelligence at the time? Well, that's a great question. I, you know, I wish I knew more from the, from the inside of military planners. I understand that there were officers who were warning that it might happen much faster than that. But we seem to have relied on estimates that it would take yeah, up to 90 days for it to happen. I think the key miscalculation perhaps was not the lack of intelligence. We, we've known how many, uh, how many fighters the Taliban have and so on. 
But I think it was a, a more strategic question of what happens if we withdraw our air power from the Afghan military. They can go on the ground and help hold territory, perhaps, against the Taliban, but they don't have the resources or the know-how or the equipment to maintain the kind of air cover that's needed to make that happen. So once the U.S. pulled all of our drones and, and manned aircraft out of the area, we really just kind of left it wide open for the Taliban to move at will across the country. So I think that was a big part of it. It was more a strategic miscalculation than a particular intelligence failure. Yeah, and, and then from what we are also hearing is, you know, a lot of the military out there, right, hadn't been paid in some time. Things weren't not going their way. So the Taliban was coming in there brokering deals, basically. Uh, you know, they didn't, there wasn't that much fighting going on. They kind of staged these surrenders along the way. What do we make about U.S. policy going forward there? Because President Biden, you know, the way he was thinking is there really was no other alternative. President Trump had already said we were going to be out of there by May. I think they said it would have been worse if we got out in May rather than right now in August. Also, Americans do support bringing troops home. So, I mean, these are all the political calculations that were going into his decision. But what do we do going forward? I think you're exactly right. I don't think we've had an end game in mind for a long time. And it's the presidents of both parties who are responsible for this. I think Congress has contributed perhaps in some ways to that. We've never been sure what the end game was. At what point do we feel like the Afghan government is stable enough to, to manage things on their own, both in terms of just sort of managing the country, but then also in, in fighting the Taliban. So we've never had a clear picture, again, because we had these competing notions of what we we're actually trying to accomplish there. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot still yet to come on all of this. Uh, we're still evacuating Americans. We're still evacuating contractors and translators, people that have been working there for years now. So the chaos is still going to be going on for a few more days, and we'll see how that all pans out. Dr. Tom Copeland, Director of Research at the Centennial Institute and Professor of Politics at Colorado Christian University, also the author of Fool Me Twice, Intelligence Failures and Mass Casualty Terrorism. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. People may have now really scattershot preferences about the type of work they want to do. We ask people, thinking about yourself, what's the closest to the right mix? Joining us now is Scott Clement, polling director at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Absolutely. The pandemic, obviously, was a big turning point for a lot of people. We, we focus a lot on how people uh, were going to work, changing careers, remote work, you know, back into the office. There's so much that was changing. But a recent poll that you just did shows that nearly a third of U.S. workers under 40 really considered changing their careers during the pandemic. They felt whatever was going on was not working for them and then maybe that they needed a change. So, Scott, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Sure. So we asked people in a national survey we conducted with George Mason University, uh, have you seriously considered changing your occupation or field of work during the pandemic? 22% of workers overall said that they had, but that rose up to 30% among workers under age 40. It was uh, right in the middle, 21% among workers in their 40s, and it was much lower, 12% among those 50 or older. So this churn, uh, people rethinking their careers, rethinking what kind of job they want, really was concentrated among uh, the younger population. We heard a lot about remote work. Uh, so many people saying, you know, I'd give up this amount of pay or this amount of vacation days uh, for remote work. But you guys asked about that. And actually, a lot of people uh, do want to go back to the workplace. That's right. I think the way I describe it is that 
people may have now really scattershot preferences about the type of work they want to do. We ask people, thinking about yourself, what's the closest to the right mix, telework versus leaving home for work? 54, 59% of all workers said that they like to mostly or always leave home for work, but another 21% said they like to evenly split it uh, between uh, teleworking and going to work. 18% said they want to mostly telework. Only 8% of workers did say that they want to be purely telework. Those numbers do rise among workers who have been teleworking recently, as well as those who uh, do most of their job at the computer. The U.S. had a record 10 million job openings in June, but uh, still we know that some of the industries have been harder hit than others. The restaurant industry, obviously, retail industry. Um, What are we seeing there? Well, I think we're seeing, and my colleagues on the you know business desk have covered this really well, is that the jobs market is recovering very strongly. You're seeing a lot of new jobs uh, with each month's report, and people are coming back into the workforce in different ways. But there's just been this extraordinary churn from the drop off last year. Some people were laid off, or they were furloughed, or they're just the nature of their job changed so much so that when people are coming back, they have a lot more choice, right? They, they really are, 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 maybe it's because that old job doesn't exist anymore, but they've been, you know, introduced to some different possibilities, maybe better, maybe worse, but they there's definitely change. Tell us a, a few of the stories of some of the people that you spoke to. Uh, you know, obviously, some people turned to investing during the pandemic. We saw, uh, you know, big rise in uh, stocks and Bitcoin, cryptocurrency investing. But uh, some of the other people that you spoke to, just kind of talking about leaving town, possibly just whatever that lifestyle change they were looking for. That's right. You know, the man named Orlando that was uh, featured at the top of our story was laid off the end of January. Uh, He worked at a a law firm, used the opportunity to go back to community college and get a uh, work toward a paralegal license. So I was a, a really trying to make the best of a, a difficult situation uh, and, 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 and treat school as his job, as he said. Um, mentioned investing. Uh, uh, another person we interviewed in our story men- mentioned uh, she's working to ho- as a host at a restaurant right now, but is also investing on the side, looking into business and nonprofit work. Um, in, in, in this uh, a particular person we interviewed uh, who moved to Brooklyn. Uh, a lot of people, there were stories about people moving to the suburbs that um, it took a different route and moved into the city, said that uh, they were really being introspective about their life and what they want to go. And these are things that are stereotypically uh, uh, related to young people. But I think uh, this is a real moment where uh, a lot of young people got thrown a real wrench in whatever plans they had, whether they were going to school or a first job, and they've been forced to go back to the drawing board and reconsider. Right, exactly. But that's a recurring theme we heard throughout all of this. The big pandemic hit really caused everybody to take a look at their stock in their own lives and and see what they could do differently. So uh, yeah, as we've been talking about, a third of U.S. workers under 40 considered changing their careers during the pandemic. Scott Clement, polling director at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Jawan Brown and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.